Are you an ambitious, driven entrepreneur starting to feel overwhelmed, maybe a little trapped by your business? Well, I have a solution for you. It is the five-day bottleneck to breakthrough challenge, where in an hour a day, we will give you the roadmap, the blueprint, the treasure map to where you can find yourself with more free time, more freedom of money, and a more valuable business. Hope to see you soon www.bottlenecktobreakthrough.com. What I really encourage people to do when they say like, what can I do to help somebody? Be there, talk, go for a walk with them, get them outside, chat, ask questions and don't jump to any like, oh, I know what you should do or here's what you could look at. Just ask questions and listen. That to me is the biggest thing because whether we're surrounded by people or not, when you're in particularly in depression, um, but also with anxiety and other forms, you do feel alone. This is The Real Bottom Line, where we tell entrepreneurial stories about true grit and perseverance from frontline business owners themselves. Now, let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Real Bottom Line. Today, my guest is Michael Devenny. Michael is the owner of Worksite in sorry, Work Insights and the Mindset Project and Blue Toe Divinity. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. Appreciate it, Wendy. Uh, so glad to have you here today. I'm really excited about where we're going to go today with the conversation, but I thought we could start a little bit with your business journey, if you don't mind. Uh, once upon a time, you were a financial planner like me, and then you took a, ch then you took a different road. Uh, and more into, I guess, the leadership training and development side of things. Have I characterized that correctly? Yeah, strategy, uh, strategy development and uh, organizational design. Yes. Yeah. What caused that? What caused that shift for you? Uh, compliance. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I um, I don't work well within really tight uh, frameworks and rules and uh, investment business. I mean, I I was an analyst as well, mm. so I do like numbers. Um, I just didn't like being forced into how to do things, compartments, and uh, I still don't like that. So, and there is always the entrepreneur side that even though you're given a fair bit of, <clears throat> as my former business partner would say, he valued flexibility, I valued independence. So mm -hmm. at some point that was gonna, that was gonna blow up. So um, um, I left and went into the consulting side and um, I've always been fascinated by why people do what they do, how they work together, what you can do to help kind of bring people um, to work towards something. Yeah. So going into the leadership side was was quite interesting, and I love strategy. That's that's one of my favorite areas. So towards the end of the consulting time, I was doing what um, a lot of people called strategy triage, which is uh, I worked with a number of private equity firms and. I'd be dropped into companies that uh, were struggling or having some challenges and just trying to unwind it and figure things out. And um, I love a I love a complex problem. So uh, that was really um, something I, I enjoyed greatly. What did you see? Is, was there a common element when you're doing these strategy triages that you could say, <clears throat> don't do this? Lack of focus. Um, so these companies would primarily be entrepreneurial companies. And for most business owners, there's probably never an opportunity that doesn't look good. So mm -hmm. um, you just keep taking them on and you just get overcommitted, overwhelmed. Um, I think a lot of it came out, always came down to one thing, which was communication and the lack of it. 
Mm -hmm. So the leaders would have a clear vision for where they wanted to go, but they hadn't really communicated that to others. And during the time that I was doing most of my consulting, the idea of actually including people uh, in the actual development of strategy would, was totally foreign. So, you know, senior teams would hide away for six months building the strategy and then suddenly spring it on everybody and expect a lot of applause and interest. And <clears throat> most people would just go, what? And then go back to what they were already doing. And so a lot of it was just trying to, you know, how, how do you, one, how do you involve people? Mm -hmm. And two, how do you communicate effectively to keep everyone on side? And then how do you engage them to move it forward? So. Interesting. Uh, I think you use the Colby tool a lot in your practice. Um, <laughs> excellent. Yeah, we're big fans of the Colby as well. Yeah, what I, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. Um, what I like about it is that it stays with you. It, it describes you over your lifetime. I, mm -hmm. I remain the same in the sense of how I approach work. Um, I may change a lot over the years based on how I interact with other people, what my personality is like. Um, but the way I do things, that, that stays the same. Well, that's fascinating, isn't it? Uh, and it does affect how teams work together if they don't understand that. You have a team of quick starts, which at one point I did, it just meant there was just so much going on and no one really clear about how to get anything done. So we never lacked for ideas, but we <laughs> were definitely challenged with execution. Um, so, and that would be the typical, we've got 15 projects and, they're all good, so we really can't not do them. And most of them had not been researched. They were really mainly conceptual. Mm -hmm. And um, I was told once that I was, you know, okay, I was complaining to, to the team at the time, why, why we're not making more progress? Why are we not getting traction? And someone did have the courage and honesty to say that if you would simply stick with one thing at a time, we would get somewhere. And um, so right back at you. And uh, that, <laughs> that did hit home um, because I do have, I'm easily distracted. Um, I love a number of things going on at once. And I'm someone who can switch quite quickly between different tasks. Mm -hmm. Sit for a full day and work on a project, incredibly painful. Mm -hmm. um, if I don't have Tina Turner playing, like, you know, I just, I can't, can't do it. <laughs> Tina Turner is your muse, is she? I I, I actually met her. Oh. I uh, have always I've always loved her music, and uh, finally, even recently, in uh, with therapy, um, I was having a real struggle the last number of months with with focus again, and sitting down and working on projects. And um, my therapist said, like, you know, have you have you really tried music? You used to use music all the time, so. Tina Turner once again, and nothing's better. Like I can do two and three hours at a time, and oh, wow. uh, I don't know. It just uh, and it's not just it's not just uh, Tina. Be in, just having music on, I find really helps me. Oddly enough, helps me focus on what I'm doing, mm. not get distracted by everything that's going on around me and what I could be doing, should be doing, you know, might be doing, and that type of thing. I have a theory that it takes uh, that certain things. <laughs> Uh, keep the um, the squirrel and uh, blingy thing people in your head occupied while the, you get the extra work done. Yeah, it's funny. Um, it, it's it, it's a balance of you're trying to distract one part of you while keeping the other part focused. Oh, yeah. yeah, and um, 
I, I do a lot of cycling and, and hiking. And that's where I let the other part go. Ah. Uh, because you're outside and uh, it's more likely to be a positive outside. It's, it's rare that I would ever, like not every day I'm out, rain, sun, whatever. Like I just like being outside. And uh, I'm really lucky in where I live that I can just go out the door and I've got hiking trails. Uh, I've got either road or, or mountain or, or trails to, to bike on. And it's just getting out and letting the day go. And um, it doesn't mean the day was bad. It means the day, like yesterday was a really, really positive day. But I desperately needed to get out. Um, like at five, like I got out at 520. It did not time the light very well. So I was coming back in the dark. And uh, I just kept reminding myself, okay, you've got to get lights. You've got to get lights. Because um, I will be a hood ornament before too many more days. Yes, that would not be good. Tell me about, it feels like so you've started a couple of um, other ventures now, Work Insights and the Mindset Project. Um, what was the Mindset Project about? So the Mindset Project, to a great extent, started to help me understand what happened to me. Okay. Um, I had had depression and anxiety issues for years, but mental health was something that was really not talked about 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And um, I think to a great extent, we probably didn't really, most of us didn't understand what it was. Mm -hmm. um, so what I tried to do is just work longer hours and work harder. Um, you know, we opened up another business. Uh, so when, when I started the consulting company, it was almost an answer to, I was feeling so much stress and pressure, I needed something to, to go to. So I added more hours to what I was already doing. And um, there's only so many years you can do that before it really starts taking effect. And I think <laughs> um, someone said I'm a really high functioning depressive. So, <clears throat> or I'm also depressingly optimistic, but um, it just hit a point where I, I could not handle it. Mm -hmm. And uh, coming in the office every day, like it's funny when I come in the office, there's a hallway. And when they'd open the door, it just felt like this rush of water that I have a million dollars of overhead that has to be covered. Mm. And before I make anything, I have to cover that million dollars. And everyone here is depending on me to be able to make that happen. And it just started getting so overwhelming that mm -hmm. um, I just couldn't handle it. And I started uh, to go into a really... It would have been the deepest depression I went into to the point that I simply could not work any longer. And one of the saddest parts of all that was we closed um, one of the businesses, which was a consulting business. And that meant people lost jobs. And uh, although everyone there, they all knew, everyone had been a part of it. I had been very open about what was going on. Um, everyone moved on and um, probably have done better without me. Um, but, uh, you know, the parting was, was tough. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> I took two months and, um, I was really struggling with, you know, was it me? Is there something damaged with me? Like at my week, like, um, a friend of mine worked at Amira and like, she's up at five in the morning going for a run, baking muffins. Then she was in and she's like this senior high powered executive who was doing all these things. And, 
thinking like that what is wrong with me um and the mindset project was to find out was it just me or or is this something a lot of other people go through and i went into the mindset project to really understand entrepreneurs and mental health and how it affects their decision making and when i look back <clears throat> i would say that i did not know what i was doing <laughs> And, uh, but I've been, a, I've been a researcher and an analyst for years, so it, it wasn't that bad. But the biggest, uh, I think, accomplishment is we had 437 entrepreneurs take an hour out of their time to complete a survey. Mm -hmm. And what came through that loud and clear was I was not alone. And this was something that was prevalent and that people were not dealing with. So, the big number, of course, was that 67% of all entrepreneurs will have some form of mental illness during their working years. So two thirds mm. of us will experience this and more than a third will not deal with it. And what does uh, that mean not deal with it? They won't seek treatment. They won't talk about it. Um, a lot of what I heard was I, no one will understand, you know, the life that I have, uh, no one's going to get it. And going to a therapist, um, going on medication, whatever it's going to be, not going not to change things. Hmm. Um, so there's just so many people that continue just to put pressure on themselves. And originally, so we it's still the largest study ever done in the world on, on entrepreneurs and mental health, so I'm quite proud of it. Um, it took us down a road that um, I wasn't quite, that was the first time in my life I wasn't kind of driven towards a goal. I wanted, like I've always been, if someone had described me in the past, it would be driven. Um, and I heard a little bit cold, which was kind of hard to hear. But um, so I was quite focused, driven, wanted to perform, wanted to do the best I could. It was really hard on the people around me because um, I know the first time the team were so happy, we hit, uh, you know, $100 million in assets. And instead of celebrating, my thought, my comment to everybody was, well, it's not going to matter until we hit 200. And so that quickly deflated everybody around me. And you know, my focus was never on what I'd actually achieved. It was always on what had to be done. Mm. And there was always more for me that had to be done. So when the depression, depression really took me out, um, and it's an odd comment, but I would look back and say it was the single best thing that ever happened to me um, because it really opened up me to being able to be who I am, mm -hmm. not who I thought I had to be. And um, the mindset project morphed into, well, where do I go with this? And I originally thought that if we could reduce stress, that would change the way entrepreneurs work. You don't have stress, you don't have a meaningful life. Um, stress is a natural part of life, and it's more about how we respond to it than, than whether we have it or not. You know, we hope we have stress in life. Otherwise, we're, we're not doing anything with it. So that was a struggle for me. It's not the stress. And so it really came down to the working environment. Like, how do we, how do we have a healthy way of working that would enable us to respond more effectively to stress and, and be positive to the people around us? So I did not think when I was 56 years old, I'd have a startup. And one that was based on technology is not in my background, but that's what happened. So developed an analytic that would be able to assess the working environment, 
help people, particularly leaders, understand the stress that's that's in the environment. Do people feel psychologically safe? What's the experience that they're having? And what can you do with that? So it took us about two and a half years to develop the, the first analytic. Um, and then we launched it at an just impeccable time, which is um, February of 2020, which of course, you know, the lockdown happened a month later. So that was a good test of what I'd learned. And um, I'm happy to say that, you know, continued developing. We now have a series of analytics. We've gone way deeper into what we can do. We're using AI to be able to mm. understand the tone and sentiment that's behind the numbers. So I've always been really attracted to understanding the context. So when you see a number, if you take it back to the investment industry, if a company's making, uh, you know, has gone up by 20%, why is that? You know, there, there's so many things that could be the cause of it. And it's understanding the context. You know, is it something that is supportable, sustainable, or is it just something else going on that's creating a, an artificial event? So now we're at the point that that's, that's what our focus is, really helping leaders understand how best to um, support people in the culture they have and make it a healthy one. Interesting. What are some of the key metrics that would to determine whether a culture was healthy or not? So the, the main one is always the foundation piece, which is psychological safety. Okay. And that's you know easily explained. I guess the most easy explanation is, do you feel that you can say what you think um, without any retribution? So do you feel you can be yourself? Mm-hmm. And there's really just 10 questions that we have to ask around that. But that's the foundation that if, if there is not psychological safety in the environment, people don't feel that they can talk. They don't feel that they can provide ideas. They don't feel that they can be themselves. So there's going to be a tremendous amount of stress that comes out of that. Um, so that's always where we start. And then we build it up from there with what's the working experience like? Do people understand? One of the big things we do, which of course is still my strategy piece coming through is that do people understand the direction of the business? Mm -hmm. Do they understand and do they actually commit to it? Um, And then we look at what the culture's like and uh, and finally, how do people work together? And the big thing we work on now is how ready are, are people for change? And we can measure how ready people are, why they are or why they're not. And then what can you actually do about it? Um, so one thing that right now I'm very lucky with is like, you know, one part of a healthy life is having meaningful work. And like, I am dripping in meaningful work. Uh, like it just is everywhere. Like there, there's nothing I'm doing right now that doesn't leave me feeling I'm making a difference. Um, I'm still like I have PTSD. So I'm still living with that every day and going through things. And it can be a struggle at times, I think for a lot of people, which I go through a lot, is that I'm doing all the right things. Why do I still slide into depression? Why do I still have like really hyper uh, anxiety? And, you know, that is a part of the illness I have. It's, it's chronic. Um, I'll have it for my lifetime. And you know, my focus is trying to find a way, as they say, to I want to enjoy my life, not just survive it. Hmm. When did you decide to be so candid, open, and vulnerable about your health? Um, <clears throat> and why? why? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I asked myself that too. Um, I think a lot of 
and in one way it's also healing for me mm -hmm. uh, to actually like I, I like to write so when I write out how I feel it, it becomes more real for me and um, I've always been a talker that's never been a problem for me and uh, when I found out how many people do not share um, or talk to other people about what they're feeling and I came from a family that never never talked about feelings um, in fact, we were actually you know, trained not to express them. So when I went through the depression, the big depression, as I call it, um, I really felt I had to talk. And luckily, I had a lot of connections that could help put that message out there. And the first one was uh, Mark Lever at uh, Saltwire, who said, you know, Mike, whatever you want to write, we'll publish. So we did a series of three full-page articles. Mm. Um, and what stunned me was I had over 600 private emails that came from those articles from people who were experiencing it and wondering what they could do from others who were around people who had anxiety and depression and, and other types of mental illness and what could, how could they help. And that really pushed me down the road of starting to write about it. And um, I'm, I'm very open. So I was also abused as a child. And what I found is that, so I read constantly. So of course, when I'm reading, I find out that 20% um, of, of men have been abused in some way in their childhood. Less than 2% would talk about it. So I thought, I'm talking. So like, I, I don't care anymore. Like, I, it, like I've spent 30 years of my life trying to meet what I felt other people wanted from me or expected of me. And that left me miserable and depressed. So I thought at this point in my life, I am going to just talk. I'm going to say what I think and not in a you know, obnoxious way, but I want to put the message out there and let, I felt I was alone most of the time. And I really wanted people to know that they were not alone, mm -hmm. that other people are experiencing this. Other people are facing problems. <clears throat> it's not to trivialize what any one person is feeling because it's all relative. You know, you may be really stressed about something and I could go, I, I don't get that, Wendy. Like, like, there's such a simple way out of that. But to you, that's incredibly important. The same way for me, like you go, Mike, really? Like, you've got bigger things to, to worry about. But for all of us, it's, it's relative. And um, yeah, it's a combination of just, and right now I'm really, I am, there is still so much stigma around mental health. It, it is a, it's it's an illness that's based on humans being human and uh, it's natural and yet if I have diabetes I could talk openly to anybody about it and no one will think differently about me when I talk about having PTSD when I talk about having anxiety to to the extent that I'm hypervigilant that that I have depression issues the statistics show that 49 percent of people would prefer not to work with me which is okay. stunning uh so we have a huge stigma i used as i said i used to think stress was the issue without a doubt the challenge we face right now is that stigma is the issue that this is one illness that there's a tremendous amount of stigma around and i don't think we can make the progress we need to until we we move that and it is the one thing that we can change um you know, mental health is something every one of us share you know whether it's ourselves personally or whether it's people close to us someone in our life is experiencing some form of, of challenge to their mental health even to the point of a mental illness so it's something to me that should be the great connector something we can all share mm. and yet 
I find it's the great divide that as soon as I talk to somebody about it, it's like they'll pull back. And I've had letters from, from lawyers, from accountants, from executives saying that if I talk about being depressed, I'm going to be taken off the career uh, channel. I'll be removed from cases that you know, basically support the financial lifestyle of my family. Um, so there's still a huge stigma to, to, to actually talking about um, you know, the illness that you have. And, and it's rooted in biology, so it's real. And a lot of it's invisible. That's the problem that most people have with it. But to be honest, diabetes is invisible to a great extent, but yet you know, we really quickly, not to pick on diabetes. Um, my father was diabetic, but I mean, that, that to me is the biggest challenge is that we, if, if we can just have comfortable, natural conversations, I am still who I am. Like I can still perform, I can still be creative, I can still uh, achieve things and make things happen. I just happen to have a mental illness. Hmm. How you mentioned that we are we are because it's silent. We we all probably know people who are having uh, some mental health issues. How do we support people in those? Like from your experience, what's the best approach or whether or idea or strategy to come out to offer support? So two answers. One is the quick one. So the one not to do is to try to fix us. Um, nothing is worse than someone, I know just what you need to do. No, you don't. Um, and it, you, you immediately discount me. Um, you, you discount what's happening to me, what's going on. But it's, it's, an, and it's, it's, you know, it, it's not meant to be a negative. It just comes through incredibly negative and it will close people up. Um, but the one thing that I find, and I can only talk from my experience because I'm not a health professional, um, what I really encourage people to do when they say, like, what can I do to help somebody? Be there. Talk. Go for a walk with them. Get them outside. Chat. Um, ask questions and don't jump to any, like, oh, I know what you should do or here's what you could look at. Just ask questions and listen. Um, that, to me, is the biggest thing because... Whether we're surrounded by people or not, when you're in, particularly in depression, um, but also with anxiety and other forms, you do feel alone. A lot of times, you, I mean, the natural thing to do, which is also one of the worst things to do, is you isolate. You know, I, I need to get away from people. And that just gives it <laughs> and the ability to grow and take over. And I'm not someone who naturally reaches out, um, but I have some really great friends who reach in and uh, they're the ones who will, you know, I, I had one friend, Jeff, who, you know, I was supposed to go to a clinic, which I was dreading because I just didn't want to be, I didn't want to be that person. And uh, Jeff uh, started as my cycling coach and ended up as one of my closest friends. And he said, if, he said, if, if you commit to me, I'll commit to you. And he, uh, put in five days a week uh, that he would either go for a hike or a bike with me every day. And we just talked. And what's great about Jeff is that uh, you know, we can be out for three hours and talk the entire time and solve all the world's problems. And then when we get back, I have no idea what we talked about, but it was great. And um, it's things like that. You don't have to commit three hours, but even sitting down for 15 minutes and just hearing, hearing the person. Um, that's the big thing is we just want to be heard and um, not with judgment, not with 
um, what, what can we do, but just to be heard. And the other piece I'll put in really quickly is go to a therapist. Um, <clears throat> I've heard so many stories of people who question whether they should go to a therapist and other people saying, well, you don't have a problem yet. There's no need to go. You don't, you don't go to a therapist because you have a problem. You go to a therapist because you want to understand what is going on with you. And you, you want someone who is unbiased, who can step back and provide you with that, you know, that partnership or guidance, however you word it. And I'm, I'm lucky that I've got this incredible therapist um, who, you know, without him, I don't know where I'd be. I see him twice a week. I've seen him for coming on seven years now. And um, he still still seems fascinated by everything I say, like after that period of time. So, uh, but he's, uh, yeah, he, he's been, he's got me through a lot of, a lot of challenges. So. Uh, if you were to offer business owners, entrepreneurs, you know, two pieces of advice around mental health and illness, what would you offer them up? The biggest challenge that entrepreneurs and business owners face is that we live our life in the gap. So as I'd mentioned, we measure ourselves to where we think we should be, not to where we've come from. And oddly enough, my therapist got me to do this a few weeks ago, that I was down about, you know, here I am sliding back into a depression. I do everything. I hear this a lot from people. I do all the right things. I meditate, I journal, I exercise, I do all these things. It's not working. And he said, like, Go back seven years and think about how you've changed. Think about what you've, you've accomplished over those seven years. And then we'll talk about it. And I just have to read in this book and talk once again about the gap concept is that when you spend your life thinking about where you need to go, you'll never get there. But if you simply turn that around and look at what have you achieved from when you started, you're suddenly feeling totally different. I wrote 14 things down that I've achieved since I started therapy. Um, and I suddenly went, holy, I'll, I'll say crap. Holy crap, I have come a long ways. And it did really make me feel better. But for entrepreneurs, I think there's a natural need to achieve. Um, there is a statistic that 49% um, of entrepreneurs come from family homes where there'd be at least one person close to them who has had a mental illness. Mm -hmm. So there is a prevalence um, uh, that, that we can go down that road and we put so much pressure on ourselves to to perform to achieve and if you look at all the words that describe entrepreneurs there's a i won't say anything but there's a startup organization that was promoting one of their new contests um called the dragon's den effect but anyway um the pressure you're putting on people that you have to win these contests you have to scale and grow as fast as possible it's not about building a good business it's about how do i put on the appearances that i'm really you know i'm going to be a unicorn you know i don't want a horn stuck in the middle of my forehead so i'm not really focused on that like i'd really like to build a good business that'll make a difference yeah um, and um, that's probably the biggest piece of advice i can give is that to step back from the expectations of others and look at where you've come from and stay really, really focused on what it is that you would like to do with your business. Um, that's, that's probably the biggest advice. And the other one is to cut the hours back a bit. 
um, you know, make some time for yourself. And I've had a good chat with a few people lately, like someone said they just couldn't find time to take, you know, some, some space for themselves. I said, so if you were just diagnosed with cancer, would you be able to take a day of week off to be able to deal with that? Of course. Isn't your mind as important? So you know, they, they did actually, which was really nice to see. So I do think that entrepreneurs take on too much. Um, we'll say yes to anything for timelines that are just ridiculous. And most clients are more than happy to get the work a week later. You're the one that said you'll do it the week earlier, just because you want to please so much and you would just end up putting so much pressure on yourself. So I think the two things is if you can measure yourself from where you've come from and keep that in view and then keep building on it. And if you can really set some reasonable timelines and expectations, the biggest thing we find right now and the, the data that we're working with is that um, stress levels have gone up and that's not a big surprise. But what's coming through is the number one stress has changed dramatically over the pandemic. So when we first started the pandemic, physical health was the main stress issue, which is natural. That turned to mental health and now what's coming through is managing expectations. So people are really struggling with what is reasonable at this point. You know, this has gone on for way longer than we thought. It's still going on. You know, what, am, what is expected of me? What do I need to do right now? So I think those are the two big things. And sorry, I give really long answers. They're great answers. Talk away. Uh, I'd like to open up the floor now to some questions. Um, does anyone have a question that they'd like to ask? Just unmute yourself and let me know. Andre? Uh, thanks, Michael. That's um, uh, fantastic. A lot of courage on your part to start talking about it because um, it is definitely a stigmatism. But with my experience with sharing my journey and my life tempest, as I call it, five, five years ago, um, I'm starting to see that there's maybe a little bit of jealousy that people are giving me the hardest time about opening up because it almost seems a little bit of a jealousy of being able to to take ownership and the courage to get help because um, it does take a lot of courage and like you said therapy is not about figuring stuff out well it is but it's more about therapy is all about self-discovery right and that that was my experience and i appreciate you sharing that um Workaholism, I think, is no different than alcoholism or substance abuse. It's also a different way to escape, and I can attest to that. I hyper-focused on my career for 20 years. Um, and the stress thing, you're right. Most people think that stress is bad, but there's eustress, which is good stress, and then there's distress, which is the not good stuff. So we definitely need the balance, like you said. Um, how would you state or how would you recommend a male to look for help? Yeah, uh, males have a problem, <clears throat> many problems, but um, one of them is that they're more hesitant to go to a therapist or seek help uh, than others. And there's this whole, again, we're back to the expectation that, uh, you know, this foolishness that men are supposed to be certain ways. Um, and it's been shown, you know, we're all the same people. And um, one thing I have heard, which I found really helpful, 
uh, and talking to people is that men are more likely to open up if they're moving. <laughs> they're like moving targets. Uh, so I know there's a, there's a therapist here uh, in Halifax who has calls it free range therapy, uh, Nick Cardone, and wonderful guy, but he does therapy for males only and it's while being active. So whether it's walking, hiking, I think he plays basketball with them too, but um, it's a way to get to get men to open up. And um, that is a challenge. Uh, you know, there's definitely a high, higher uh, hesitancy for, for men to open up than, than for women. But I think women face a challenge from the other side is that, you know, if women open up that old, you know, stereotype of, well, women are more emotional, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're not able to handle it. So on both sides, we're facing um, stigma. And, uh, but I think the biggest thing is to find a way that feels comfortable. But I do hear that one of the big ways is for men is to get them moving. And uh, I, like, I have a lot of hike and talks. So I find that that's really helpful. But um, I think too, men can respond to coaching uh, and maybe, you know, kind of wording therapy as coaching is, is another way to get, to get an opening there. But I think too, we're getting to a point where it's not quite as bad. And if we say like the impact that an entrepreneur has on the people around them, it's not just your own mental health. It is mental health of all the people who either work with you, work for you, work around you, your family, you have a huge impact on a lot of people. So it's important that, that you take care of yourself and so that you can be really good to the people around you for them. That's a great point, Michael, that it's not just you who's, if you are, if you are suffering, it's not just you suffering typically. Yeah, I was horrified when, when I was closing the business down on the consulting side, we had this incredible woman who worked to try to organize this as best she could, Allison, and uh, was just a lovely woman. And they talked about DNC days. I said, what's a DNC day? And she said, part of my job was to see what mood you were in when you came in in the morning. And she said, I could tell when you walked through the door what it was going to be like. And I would email everybody and say DNC day, which is duck and cover, um, so that I was clearly in a tense, uh, uptight mood, and that was going to be felt by all. Uh, so I think that's something we all have to realize is that we definitely affect the people around us. And, um, you know, it's not contagious, but it definitely affects the mood of people around you. And if you're creating a toxic environment by not dealing with the, the challenges you're facing, you're making it really tough for other people. So um, I've seen people who you know, where one partner is, is desperate to try to understand what's going on with the other. This is your closest relationship in life, and yet you can't talk to them, or you feel you can't talk to them. So it's just really understanding that, you know, connecting to the people around you and being open and honest. I'm very open with my team. Like, you know, what's been, I don't use them as therapists, but I'm really open with, with what's going on. I never want them to think they've done something wrong because I'm, I'm not in that mood today. And what I found it's done is that they're incredibly open now about, I only work with millennials too, but um, they're, they're incredibly open with how they're feeling and what's going on with them. And we had this one chat about um, 
um, ADHD one day, which would never have happened in any of the other businesses I've had before. So again, like I'm, I'm really lucky that I'm working in this environment that's just open, supportive, and we can talk about anything. Yeah. And um, I love that, that, that someone like, you don't have to tell me you need a mental health day. Just, and you don't have to call it that. Just say, I need some time, I need some space. I'm going to walk the dog, you know, for the morning, take a hike, do whatever you're going to do. Um, I'm going to build the motorcycle. Don't care. Like, just take it. Um, like, I know we're going to get the outcomes we're looking for. So, you know, take care of yourself along the way. Hmm. Thank you. Melanie, did you have a question? Uh, wow. Yeah, I've, I've got many. <laughs> and they haven't fully articulated because thank you, um, Michael. That's an amazing story. I, uh, I think it is also incredibly brave and it's a great example you're setting for people. Thank you. Um, so I appreciate you sharing. Do you feel as though you mentioned you work with millennials and something I keep thinking about is, do you see a shift? Do you, you know, because, you know, we're of a certain generation, you came from a certain background. Are you seeing a shift from millennials and then into Gen Z, perhaps uh, in that people are more comfortable speaking openly and are you hopeful for that to continue? Not that there isn't still stigma, but just wondering if you personally, if you see a shift. I am hopeful. Um, I believe there is a difference. You know, we're all people, but there's definitely generational um, differences between us. And um, I, I find millennials are much more open to talk about things. Yeah. And there's not that judgmental aspect that I think a lot of boomers have. And um, I, always feel, I always feel boomers are focused on performance. How do I perform so that I meet the expectations that are upon me? Um, whereas millennials are, how do I work in a way that makes me feel good about myself and the work that I'm doing? And I would like to be a millennial. <laughs> uh, not to be that age again. I'm okay with my age. Well, not really, but anyway. Um, I just like, I like the openness. Um, but there's still a lot of issues with millennials in terms of how much they share, how they share it, um, how they manage it. So we each have our, we all have our challenges, but I do feel that millennials are more open. They're now moving into the management ranks, um, which is definitely pushing uh, the limits of companies. And I'll just, no one's asked, but I'm gonna say this one, like that the one thing that companies can do to make a difference is for leaders first to open up. Um, everyone says, well, we've got these wellness programs, like everything we've done, all these things. Great. But until you talk and until you admit that, that and be vulnerable, other people are not going to feel that they can. If the CEO, if the president, if the business owner keeps it all in and doesn't share that they too have anxiety or have uh, challenges, then you don't have to like, do the gritty details, but just say, you know what? Yeah, I feel anxiety a lot too. I'm anxious about this, anxious about that. When the senior leader admits that they too are human, then the rest of us can go, oh, okay, then it's, it's all right for me to take advantage of the company uh, programs and, and to, to involve ourselves. But when that senior leader keeps that you know stiff upper lip and everything's good and everything's positive, and there is a balance, but until you're going to be open yourself and be actively engaged in whatever the strategy is that you're bringing to the company, it's not going to work. Yeah, I, I can see that. And I, 
Um, I'm glad you feel hopeful. I, I do as well. Um, um, do you also feel as though, I feel sometimes that, you know, it's all, older generations do this to the up and coming generations all the time. Oh, kids these days, blah, blah, blah. They've done it since like Socrates. Like there's always this, when there's a shift in a positive direction, like in this case, mental health, weirdly it gets turned against the younger generation. Oh, they're so entitled. You know, the idea that being happy in your workplace and not being driven to mental illness because of your, you know, the work you have to do to live in your career like that's entitled. Um, so I'm hoping as well that that will shift. I don't hear that quite as much now. I'm actually hearing a little bit more positivity around, but when millennials first started entering the workplace, oh my gosh, the backlash, you know, and even the fact that they want to work for companies that are doing good and that they feel proud to be a part of. And they will leave. They will leave. If you do Right. And that was such an affront to the, you know, head down, get your work done. Yes, sir. No, sir. Three bags full thing that essentially was the working world for a very, very, very long time. So, okay. So that's, that's great. I'm glad given the, the research you've done and your experiences, I'm glad you also see it as positive shift. There's, there's two things that are happening as well. Like the pandemic, you know, everyone's talking about what the pandemic has done all the trends that are coming to bear from the pandemic were there before. Uh, what the pandemic has done is escalated them, amplified them, sped them up, all those things. Mm -hmm. um, the instant rate of mental illness used to be around 20% and it was increasing. Over the last year, it's gone up to 41%. So we're, we're, we're nearing what we had thought would happen within 10 years, um, that we're getting about half of people facing mental illness each year. The other thing that's, so it's much more prevalent around us. The, the second thing that's happened is that organizations, companies are now facing the fact that this isn't an individual problem. This is an organizational problem. Um, so most of people's um, challenges to mental health are rooted in childhood, but they're usually triggered by work. So organizations can do one of the greatest things possible to help people, which is to raise awareness of what mental illness is, what it isn't, and to reduce that stigma. Um, and that's something that I think companies are fully responsible for doing um, and need to step up and not to donate a check to some gala dinner every year, which is just a PR photo op. And like, I know it's great and all that, but do something else. Um, like actually get engaged in the people who work for you, with you, and be open and um, you know, make sure it's an environment that's supportive. Where would you suggest um, entrepreneurs and business owners go? Like what resources are available or where is a good spot for some resources if we want to build an organization and provide that, that, that education on mental health and illness? There's actually not a lot of resources available. That is one of the challenges. I think the governments, uh, federal government particularly, did an incredible job financially helping companies get through the pandemic. It would have been wonderful if they had provided like a $2,500 um, grant for getting mental health um, support. That would have at least covered 10 to 12 sessions. So that would have been great. Uh, they didn't. Um, but the biggest challenge we face is, is, is on the supply side. We don't have enough therapists and counselors 
we need to make a push for universities uh, to graduate more uh, psychologists, uh, counselors, therapists. It's a, it's an area that's not going to to, to stop demanding people, yeah. um, and uh, we're simply not graduating enough people. I, I don't quite understand that one. That there's a clear issue. It's been coming for years, and yet the academic uh, uh, sector has not opened up to to graduate more people. And we're talking like in one sense, the province has said we're going to hire every nurse that graduates in the next five years, which now that's great, but throwing numbers doesn't mean it's going to be a better working environment. I'll put it up there. Um, on the other hand, we haven't said we're going to make sure that every psychologist who graduates will have a place here. We should be doing that. Um, remote and virtual therapy have become an access point for many that works, but there's nothing like being in person. Um, you really connect with somebody and and it's important, but um, we need to increase the resources on the supply side. So we've been innovating all around you know, virtual health and virtual therapy and, and using different tools to help. What we haven't done is increase the actual supply. Uh, so if people suddenly go, hey, you're right, I really need to go to somebody, try to find somebody. Um, and therapists themselves are overwhelmed. They can only work so many hours like to protect themselves for, for others. Yeah. So, that's the big thing for me is if we don't increase supply, um, we're going to be incredibly challenged. Well, Michael, thank you for so much for your time today. Um, the real bottom line here is that mental health matters and just go for a walk and a talk. <laughs> Thanks so much, Michael. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Real Bottom Line. This show is produced by Black Star Wealth. Executive producer, Wendy Brookhouse. To learn more about the show or to contact us, go to blackstarwealth.com.